Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. A few summers ago, my wife and I went on a trip to four South African countries. We spent a large portion of the trip on safari and it was everything we could have hoped. While I was there, I was really impressed with the safari guides. I was just blown away by all that they needed to know, including understanding the animals, their behavior, their footprints, having an intimacy with the land, how to keep the animals and the travelers safe, balancing the disparate needs and desires of the individuals in the group, and so many other seemingly superhuman skills. It was as though they had to have the knowledge and brain power to pull off impossible feats every second. As I prepared for my trip, I read the book of Safari Guide Peter Allison, who is the guest on this episode. The book is called Whatever You Do, Don't Run, True Tales of a Botswana Safari Guide. It is gripping, information-packed, and totally entertaining. I agree with National Geographic that said of Peter and his book, his misadventures make whatever you do don't run an absorbing read. The material is rich and Allison is a gifted storyteller. As you will also hear, Peter is good-humored, passionate about his work, extremely knowledgeable, and just the kind of guy you would want driving your Jeep on safari. So listen in as Peter talks about being a safari guide. Peter Allison, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I can't even tell you what a thrill this is. I think I know I told you and I'm letting my listeners know I've been hunting you for a year and a half. You've been my white whale, no pun intended, (laughs) and I got you. And it's fantastic because I loved your book so much. I've listened to it a few times and there's just something so inarguable about being a safari guy that kind of is at the top of the food chain, no pun intended for a naturalist. Like this is one of the coolest things a human being can do from where I sit. Like you go to your high school reunion and you say, hey, great to see y'all. What are you doing, Peter? I'm a safari, I'm a safari guide. That's a showstopper, bro. Yeah. And I think particularly coming from Sydney, as I do originally, it's not high on the list of what would you like to be when you grow up? It's beyond implausible that that's what you'll do. Unbelievable. Can you just give the backstory about how did this happen? Like the boy from Sydney becoming the safari guide out in Botswana and various other African countries. I made a bunch of bad decisions. Something I say to people is no good story begins with a good decision. (laughs) And my bad decision was that I was going to study law. I'd left school early and I worked on boats on Sydney Harbour for a while. And I wanted to travel for a year and I just thought I'm going to have a year overseas, last hurrah. And I was just turning 19 as I made this decision. I've loved animals my whole life. Well, 19 years of it thus far at that point, tossed a coin between Africa and South America, ended up in Africa with the idea, backpack for a year and then come back, finish school, study law, be rich, if not happy. I had no passion or interest in the law, but it was just, I figured I'd get in. And instead I got a job working as the barman in a safari camp and Soon after that, I think I'd been at it for about six months serving drinks. And it was fantastic. What a thing for a 19-year-old 
I was surrounded by all the animals I'd only seen before on television. And then one of the guides fell over and another one wouldn't stop coughing. So they said, okay, it's midday. The manager came and said, handed me a rifle, handed me keys to a Land Rover. And it's like, we anoint thee. Well, 3.30 this afternoon, you are a safari guide. And I was over the moon as if somebody was offering me the chance to be James Bond or, or John Wick. It's like, yeah, but that's on the screen. That doesn't happen in real life. So there's no way I was going to say no, but I did feel a need to say just two things I want to mention. This is the very first time I've ever touched a firearm in my life. I've also never driven a car. And yet three and a half hours later, out I went taking my first ever guests on safari. And it was a catastrophe, as you probably imagine. I can only imagine the very first time I was even a food server, I remember carrying it was almost like something like a gag on Sesame Street. I carry out these eight plates and manage to dump them all on a poor patron's head. I love that any, by the way, any good story begins with a bad decision. Quotable. What were some of the catastrophes of the first journey out? Well, I'd, I'd had one driving lesson for about two hours ever. And I was taken to a place called One Tree Plain for at the end of my lesson, they had to rename it. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's that strange fascination you have, and you'd be able to explain this with your <laughs> psychology training, but I was driving and steering. There was nothing to hit except this single tree, and so it was <laughs> magnet. Uh, and somehow just rammed into it with, with enough force to topple it. <laughs> and then so, of course, once I had people in there and I'd go to put it in gear and I'd put it in reverse and almost ran over a leopard, they must have either thought I was grossly incompetent or wildly drunk. And with an Australian accent, you, you, on a bad footing, you sound a bit drunk anyway. So, oh, yeah, how's it going? <laughs> going in safari. I'm not in touch with any of those people, and I think there's reasons for that. Dude, I, I don't think I've laughed this hard as an interviewer. I mean, just this. And by the way, listeners, the stories that Peter shares throughout the book, I mean, you will laugh out loud and hard multiple times. And it's an edifying story. I mean, there's so much useful information as well as fascinating information in the book. But let's start with, before we even go any farther, what was your nickname, uh, your first nickname, I should say, as a safari guide? Yeah, well, it came about from pushing that tree over. That, and there was also in a bushfire at one point, I pushed over a tree because it's half burnt. And so the local Shungan people, who are the masters of giving nicknames, great nicknames, and there's a skill to that or an art, they called me Ingwenza Indlov, which means the sexually frustrated elephant. Best name ever. Uh, yeah. And the reason they call that is that a sexually frustrated elephant pushes over trees because they can. If teenage boys could do it, deforestation would be far, far worse. And I was a teenage boy. I was sexually frustrated. <laughs> Everybody always says, oh, a safari guy. You must have had so much sex. It's like, no, the tourists are old and the animals are fast. <laughs> yeah, it's not like being a ski instructor. So, of course, the nickname in Gwenza and Lorv, way too long, would get shortened. And in Lorv means elephant. And that's not what they called me. They just used to call me in Gwenza. So just that was sexual frustration. That stuck with me until I moved to Botswana. That is just fantastic. So, Let's talk about the skills required to be a good safari guide. What are some of the skills that are required for the job? Uh, I think it would depend on who you ask. So you have your technical safari guides who are going to tell you, 
Well, first of all, you need elite driving skills of a four by four car. You need to know how to operate a high lift jack. You need to be able to hit a moving and a target traveling at however many kilometers per hour from this distance at an angle and so on and et cetera. But 90 something percent of what you're doing is humans, not animals. Really what you should be doing as a good safari guide is making the people who are with you, your guests, fall in love with the place that you love so dearly, not with your incredible skill set. Ultimately, it should be about conservation and nobody's going to care about a place enough to look after it if they don't love it. So break away from this idea. Look at how I'm James Bond or I'm John Wick, whatever. Look at this cool life I lead. Try to be the least cool person on the vehicle and let these people fall in love and share the place that you've got in love. So your job really is to be the emissary for nature, to really present it to people and make the nature itself the star of the show and yourself to be secondary or even tertiary. You really yeah, put, absolutely. You put yeah. yeah. And I think it's, I mean, again, I was as guilty of this as anybody is. I, I was a young guy. There's a lot of ego, a lot of just absolute stupidity. And I don't even think the younger version of myself would argue with that. And then as you get more comfortable in your own skin and hopefully more mature, you do start to think, well, what effect am I having here? And how can I be more effective? And people will have a better time when you drop your own ego and the, the trip's about them and their relays. And you watch people falling in love with this thing. And it's not like they're falling in love with your girlfriend or your wife. You don't, this is not an exclusive relationship you have with the ecosystems of Africa. You should be able to share it. It's pretty bloody big. Oh, that's fantastic. I think about the best, at least one of the best safari guys. His name was Bijaki, he, or Jax is what he went by. And he was from Botswana. And just, he really did exactly what you're saying. He was such a cool cat and just really showed us and made the nature itself the star of the show, just like you said. And yet he yeah. was a perfectly, I mean, just a really cool dude. And yet, in spite of the fact that you're being a tour guide and doing all of those skills. Let's talk about the level of geeking out to nature itself and the things you needed to learn in terms of how did you do that? Uh, you learned about the animals there and that's as if you took a, an entire course. Yeah. And I think I was lucky, very, very, I know I was lucky, I should say. When I first started out, it was something I was only, I only realized later on. I was with an exceptional group of safari guides, still friends with all of them to this day. And so they set a benchmark that I thought that's what a safari guide needed to be. I didn't need to go very far in the reserve we were in and meet some really low-level safari. You know, these guys did the least possible work they could do to get their salary and a, and a tip at the end of the day, whereas the people I was with wanted to be better. And so not only did they set a benchmark, it was a moving target because they were getting better as I was trying, putting my first my foot on the first rung of the ladder, these guys were already climbing and they knew how to climb. That really helped. And they and it's a wonderfully generous industry for all the chest thumping and so on about it. Everybody wants you to do well. Met very few people in the business that that think, oh, this up and comer is good and I, I hope he doesn't succeed because it makes me look bad. Never really experienced that. That's good. People want you to succeed. Again, we're, we're all trying to save the places we work in. And it's not study if you love it. I couldn't agree more, by the way. I mean, every week I'm learning more about psych just because I freaking love it. I think I, I was actually about- thinking before you spoke today that parallel between 
wildlife sciences and which is zoology, biology, evolutionary biology, there's so much to it. And something like psychology is they are evolving fields. They're not static. Not at all. Almost 30 years in the safari world, the reason zebras have stripes has changed almost annually, the theory behind that. And so if I stuck with what I was taught in 1994 when I first began, I would be so outdated in what I'm saying. I like that. I like that it you that keep changes. moving forward. There's always something new to learn. I have a restless mind. And you couldn't be more on point when you say that psychology is a parallel. Things that we thought just 10 years ago, we've come to see that there are advancements and there's more to the story than we had thought previously. And I think about in the 1800s, John Muir was a naturalist and he got to know the Yosemite Basin so well. And he deferred in his opinion about how the Yosemite Valley Basin was created from the scientists of that time. Nearly 200 years later, we now know that John Muir was correct and the scientists of that time were not. And I think about something else that you and I talked about offline, and that is one of my very favorite social scientists said the differentiator between humans and other species of animals is that we can imagine a future, that we have the prefrontal cortical capacity to imagine a future and respond to that imagination. And yet I see evidence of it in elephants. I just watched The Secret Lives of Elephants, and I'm just thinking, what? Now this brilliant Harvard researcher who I love, I think there's an asterisk next to what he says, if not an entire redaction of what he was saying. Yeah. I think don't expect much anticipation, let alone philosophy from a snail. I mean, people take this too far. My deceased countryman is like, oh, and crocodiles are safe, man. <laughs> yeah, but listen, if one beats you at Scrabble, you're a bit of a thinkster. They're very good at what they do, and they're, but they hatch knowing every single thing they need to know. They don't sit there going, I'm just, the lagoon's great, but I'm desperate to see Paris one day. It's just not who they are. But we do see with particularly some of the more social animals and the ones with bigger brains, like elephants, undoubtedly, they never stop surprising us. I know that there was an experiment done with a tame chimpanzee where they built a model of the house that he lived in. This chimpanzee loved Coca-Cola. Apparently, I'm not endorsing feeding sugary drinks to great apes. <laughs> and in the model of the house, they placed a model can of a Coca-Cola in it, and he ran from the room straight to the cupboard they put in, which showed representative thought. And the oh, reason it's key, and, and coming back to what you were talking about, there's a, a great theory first put out, or I first read it from a man called Louis Liebenberg, that the first science we had as humans was tracking. And you mentioned the cortex. And the reason that this was important was, I mean, and I've seen monkeys and monkeys are pretty intelligent by measured against, again, our friend, the snail or the crocodile. They can see a leopard and they freak out. They can hear a leopard and they freak out. Sense of smell is not that great, but if they were to smell a leopard, they'd freak out. But no matter how many times they've seen a leopard walking and leaving tracks, a monkey will never look at those tracks on the ground and go, somewhere up ahead is a leopard. They never make that leap. Now, we did, and what's so important about this theory, and I'm, I'm coming back to the point, is Louis Liebenberg and others believe this is what drove language and the, the requirement to have tense. Because you could have a word for leopard, and in monkey, leopard is... <laughs> absolutely freak out. With a cheetah, they're like... Can you describe what you were doing with your lips there? Yeah, it's just a a monkey alarm call. So it's 
mine's not particularly and was, that, was that actually how they do it? Yeah. So a, Oh, you a weren't just goofing around. No, 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 no. That's the sound. So there's different... Wait, dude, do it again. So if it's a cheetah or a lion or wild dog hyena, the monkey, the first monkey that spots them in the, the family of monkeys will do like a... Can't actually... You're doing the vocalizations as well as the sub vocalizations. And I thought you were just goofing. That was actually real. Wait till I do the cricket. Try me again. <laughs> I'm a bastard to camp with. No sh... Wow. They can't hear what you're doing, unfortunately, but... Okay, so like I can... Facial yeah. expressions and... You learn a range of animal noises. Animal... Part of your role as a guide is... There's book studies, which are great, but the very ancient human methods of using all of your senses is how you find wildlife. Uh, I would say of the leopards that I actually found and could show to people and call in other guides, maybe 80% was through listening. And you learn the, the variety of calls that not just mammals make, but even birds. And you use that. Just to finish off what I was saying about tracking is we obviously had a word for leopard, pretty easy to come by, a noun for that animal that we were hunted by. Early humans were hunted by leopards. We know that. But what we needed to say when we saw a leopard track and was fresh is a leopard, but not now, there was a leopard here. The leopard is now over there. And so it's believed that this is what drove that prefrontal cortex and this requirement for language and having tense. I think it's an extraordinary theory. I don't know how they'll test it. And it led to forensics. I mean, that's very much what we're doing as a safari guide. So, so coming to the point of the sounds is when you're driving along as a guide, one, yes, you're trying to make sure everybody on board is happy. You're scanning the environment with your eyes, but you're also listening. And there's hierarchy of trust. So if you hear a kudu, it's a medium-sized antelope, pretty big antelope, beautiful spiral horns on the male. They give this really loud, really explosive bark, very much like a baboon's bark. They 100% drive to where they are, follow the sound in. You'll see them. They've got big ears. They're good on listening. Great listeners. The ears will be facing the predator they've seen. They wow. will be the predator they've seen. They are far better at spotting wildlife than we are. They just point it out for you. They act like pointer dog does for <laughs> hunger. Yeah, so kudu are great. Then you get monkeys who are pretty reliable, but sometimes there's violence within the group and what sounds like an alarm call is actually just stress. And then at the bottom, you've got squirrels. If you've got squirrels going and you've got birds going, you get interested. But then one of the things you do, so there's a bird called a Franklin, which looks much like an oversized quail or a partridge. They... Check, 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 check. And if you hear that, you think, well, it could be a mongoose, could be a snake. I'm interested in those. Maybe the people I'm with are not so interested in those. If you find that bird and it's sitting deep inside a bush, it got in there because of a bird of prey. It's making sure that an eagle or a goshawk can't grab it. If it's sitting on top of a bush, it definitely wasn't a bird of prey that frightened it. It was something on the ground. And now you're more interested. That could be a leopard or a cheetah. So there's a lot of information coming in. And people think, oh, how do you learn all of this? It's like, well, how do you learn to survive in a city? Let's contrast that because you actually mentioned that the rules of the city may be even more complex than the rules out in the savannah. And that was really interesting. And that in certain ways that when you know the rules of the savannah, 
may actually be safer than the city is one of the things that you said in the book. And I was just like, what? Yeah, I believe so. Once you know them, maybe they're simpler to learn because they're buried in our DNA. Humans evolved in Africa. Without a doubt, I mean, I I would have poo-pooed the idea of deep race memory until the first time I was close to a lion that roared. And when you're close to it, there is a very ancient part of you that uncurls and says, climb a tree, you bloody idiot. (laughs) And it is so ancient. You feel that in your marrow, in your lungs, you feel it in every single part of you. And it's people burst into tears. People triggers a very emotional response. And 29 years old on the board of that, 29 years in, I should say. And so, yeah, so, so all of these sounds, we've got it all there. Once you start realizing this is an alarm call to listen to, this is worth dismissing, it's just in the back of your mind. It's as a subconscious in the way that we often drive. I mean, you consider you're driving tons of metal and glass at 60 miles an hour, and most of what you do is unconscious. That's insane. We can learn to do these things. We learn to do it much the same out in the bush with enough exposure. That's amazing. Let's talk about one of the scariest, in spite of the fact that it is, you know, you know how to do it and you've found ways to make it as safe as possible. There are harrowing things that are unpredictable, like walking up on a crocodile, which you described. And I believe that your scariest animal may be the croc. Yeah. With all due respect to your dearly departed countryman, Steve Irwin, who I believe you gave a little nod of the head to a moment ago. Let's talk about scary stuff. What scary stuff has happened? So I spent a lot more time in trees as an adult than I did as a child. Mainly, again, all begins with a bad decision. (laughs) Very rarely, you know, the difference between working out there and visiting there as a tourist is it's almost like you've got secret service protection while you're there. You've always got an escort. You've always got someone who's checking ahead. It's, you're, you're very well looked after. I believe it's a far safer vacation than any major city in the world, except maybe somewhere like Singapore that's just freakishly safe. But then when you're a staff member, you're walking, you're on the ground a lot more rather than on raised walkways. You're walking around the dark by yourself a lot more, possibly walking around drunk every now and then. <laughs> um, but I, I think... The one for me that stands out was there was a night sitting at the dinner table and one of the guests described a snake they'd seen and it just didn't match anything that I was aware of. So I said, well, let me go back to my room. I've got a snake book, bring it up. We'll have a look through. I walked back to my room and we used to have mag lights. They were always pinched by the tourists. Really? <laughs> Every tourism business. Okay. The more five star you are, the more stuff that gets stolen. Come on, man. It's weird. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the show White Lotus. For me, that's- I love White Lotus. And so do I, but it's a documentary and it's harrowing. I know all of those people. They're all real. It's crazy. And by the way, some people take issue with the show because there are no likable characters on it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your documentary. Yeah. We will be going there in a moment. But so anyway, you're walking back with one of the non-nicked mag lights. I didn't, no, I didn't have a mag light. So I just had one of those old school paraffin or kerosene. Oh, because somebody had stolen your freaking mag light. Yeah. So all I had was one of those, I mean, literally Victorian era. The design has not oh, changed. come on. Wireframe, bit of glass and a burning wick in it. Got to my room and my room had this, just like a slide bolt. And when I say room, it was some eucalyptus poles in the ground with canvas wrapped around it. So somewhere. Unreal. Okay. This is what you've got. And 
And I built it and I building skills a bit lacking. So the door had immediately warped, which meant the bolt was really jammed tight. So I slowly slide this thing out, got in, grabbed my snake book, came back, shut the door, slide the bolt back in and turned around. I took maybe three steps from my door and in the sand coming towards me were my tracks, very fresh, Mm. seconds old, 30, 45 seconds old, but there was something on top of them. And so I thought, what's that? Yeah, they should be pristine. So I crouched down and over the top of my footprints were a lioness's tracks. Come on, man. Right over them. And there was something weird. They looked bizarre. They had these striations in them, which you'd normally get from a porcupine track because the quills drag behind them. So you get this stripiness that goes over the top of their feet because the quills come after the feet. And I realized that it was because she'd been crouching. She had been, it was her belly fur dragging. And she must have been right, right behind me. And when I'd gone into my room, I'd vanished. To her, what looks solid is solid. So that's the most frightened I've ever been in that environment because I was now about three steps from my door. And I know knew that seconds before a lion had been hunting me. There was no way she was on her belly. Ready to pounce. Yes. And so I took the three longest steps of my life back to my door. <laughs> got that by I almost just kicked the door down, but then I wouldn't have had a door. I got inside, shut it from the inside. <laughs> just thought, might just stay here the rest of the night now, and nobody needs to know what snake it was that they saw. Unreal. And one of your friends actually was mauled by a lion and nearly killed yeah. and put back together in South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's some of the best plastic surgeons in the world are in South Africa. If you want flawless skin and enhancements of your lovely parts come to Los Angeles <laughs> but if you've been in an accident you've been shot the South Africans got experience with that they did some extraordinary work he, you look at him and you wouldn't know that he had something like 200 stitches or so that day unreal and he nearly died and he'd gotten hurt playing I believe some type of netball and you wanted to call it a, a lion attack and lo and behold he got a lion attack not long yeah. after great part of the book that you'll have to read. Let's go to the most difficult of animals probably on safari, and that would be your humans. I'm trying to imagine the equilibrium you must strike as a safari guide who depends on tips, but also must lay down the law and try to be diplomatic while simultaneously call some order to people with vastly different needs, whether it's we've got birders and mammal people on board, and I'm trying to please both. We've got somebody who doesn't mind the rules and carries maybe thrice the amount of poundage of camera equipment as Spielberg did. Not the real Spielberg. I've not, not taken the real Spielberg. I'd it love was, to take uh... the real Spielberg on Safari, but yeah. <laughs> but let's, let's get into it. How do you keep law and order while simultaneously be diplomatic to these people who are paying a lot for their vacation and may be rather entitled? What was your North Star in doing all that? So maybe I, I need to make a disclaimer here because I am still in the tourism industry, but I said <laughs> the best stories start with the worst decisions. <laughs> so so the, the best stories start with the worst people. Unfortunately, there's not 90, whatever. Most people who come out on safari are there because they want to see animals. They're fascinated by the environment. You get on really well with them. The end. Right. The people in my group were awesome. Nice story, but boring one. Yeah. So the, the stories certainly that I've written are typically about the, ex, the extremes. But you do get people who are unreasonable and 
Sometimes it's just they either did not receive or did not read information describing the kind of place they were going to. And that can be charming enough. I once had a couple arrive and this is when I was working in Botswana. And the only way you got to the camp was by flying in a light aircraft. Right. Uh, There's no drive-in option available. Very remote. And like off the Okavango Delta here. Yeah. In the middle of the Okavango, but there's land and water all the way. It's just very difficult to get to. You know exactly what you're talking about. And it's beyond inspiring and amazing. Yeah. It's one of the most pristine, intact ecosystems. It's the size of Switzerland and does not have a single sealed road through it. No power lines, no telephone poles. It's the closest thing to the Garden of Eden that we've got. And this couple got off the plane and I introduced myself to them and the husband's kind of just nodding and you could see his wife either desperately needed a pee or was overwhelmed with happiness of being there, that little happy dance, uh, either full bladder or, or excitement. And doing his little excited hand clapping at me and I won't carry on with that because that'll be a distracting noise. But he said, I'm so excited. I was like, well, we're excited to have you here. Well, and it's, it's lovely. It's great. I'd rather that than somebody arriving who's not excited. So there was no cynicism in what I was saying. Uh, oh, we're excited to have you here. This is great. And she said, oh, I've always wanted to come to Kenya. I went, oh, well, <laughs> I do hope that you get there one day. And then the clapping slowed down. And she said, do you mean I can't believe I'm Kenya's this. about four countries north of here? You're in Botswana. Oh my God. And she said, oh. Do you have animals here? I said, oh, Come we've got on, lots of animals, lots of animals. Said, well, I'm just so excited to be wherever it is you said that I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually quite lovely. But then That is hilarious. And again, I started out so young. I mean, I'm now a hell of a lot closer to the reaper than I am to the stork. But when I started, I was a child. So I was 19. And a lot of the people I would take on safari were successful back in their world, CEOs, CFOs. And a lot of those people get to the top by they push through, they push people out of the way. And I've spent a lot of time in particular lately with billionaires. And what I've realized is all these people are not driven by money. They're driven by winning. They see a problem and they want to win far more than they're driven by the wealth of it. So with these people, very confronting and and agitating for them where I've got the keys, I'm driving the car, I've got the cool job. Imagine in their personal universes, there's a lot of kowtowing and I was setting the rules. And as you said, it was a balance and I I got it wrong on any number of occasions. And you start realizing you've got between the airstrip and the camp to set a tone. One of the things I actually started doing in in the later years of my career, when I was full-time safari guide living out in the bush, the power of profanity. Mm, Yeah. Because... These people were doing longer trips. Most of them were in Africa, you know, two weeks maybe. And they'd been and had been, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags, full, sir. And between the airstrip and camp, they would hear me say, fuck. Yeah. Like I'd say, oh, for fuck's sake, something like that. And you'd see the, the shock. I'm sure we're paying far too much to, to have him say that, but this actually appears to be a human. A real one. Yes. This is not a service bot. <laughs> I love that. The Graduate School of Business out of Stanford has published a study that seems to indicate that swearing is correlated with honesty. And I'm thinking about the C-level person who may have employed some Machiavellian tactics to win along the way. And one of the things that they really do appreciate, to your point, Peter, and is showing them what you're made of and showing them that you are legit. And you and I both lived in Japan and all it takes to be sensei 
which literally means born before, is that you were born before the other, even if you were younger, relative to the thing that you're teaching. And yes. <clears throat> you are the sensei out there, the C-level individual, the billionaire, may look at you and say, oh, he's real. And they respect that. And to Esther Perel's point, a sexologist, a lot of these C-level folks really do want to be submissive in if they're into BDSM, for example. They want to oh. have a context in which they are number two. They're actually fatigued by being number one all the time. So by you saying fucking this and fucking that and dropping these clues that you are the alpha here, they may paradoxically relax. Has that been consistent with your... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm now nervous that they were also turned on. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that's the case, but yeah. As I, I cracked the figurative whip. Uh, again, I, the, the good stories are about the worst people. There are, I've got clients who are billionaires who I now guide every year. Still guide, but in a more restricted way where I have individual clients who I take on longer trips now through whichever country they want to travel. And I find with a lot of them, again, it's you've almost got to establish your credibility, which is fair enough. Once you've got it and you are one of the only people in their life that is not asking them for something, then they're completely relaxed. That's interesting. And I have a longer time to do it now with them. But I've got one client, feel I can say we've become friends, incredibly successful and wealthy man. And on our first safari, he pretty much only spoke to me on the very last day. The second one, the very first thing he said to me was, you've got fat. <laughs> Interesting. And straight away, I was like, oh, we're buddies. <laughs> <laughs> because he was being real. Yeah. So what have you learned about the human species as somebody who's really paid such close attention to various mammals, birds, and other animals throughout the planet? What have you come to recognize about us? That we are not that far removed from the wildebeest and baboons. And I actually I realized that the first time, and I know that other people have obviously hit that realization, but when I was still living in the bush full time and I went back to visit Australia and went out to a bar that I'd been to many, many times when I'd lived in Sydney and I looked around, it's like, oh, I know what that guy's doing. That's what wildebeest do when they're trying to attract a mate. That's and the displacement activity which is a, a term we use about animals, and you'll see a lot of it. So, I mean, we are talking earlier about sounds. Is If a leopard calls in the far distance, impalas that you might be sitting by and you've heard the leopard, they've heard the leopard, they know not to run. Why run blindly? Wait until you know where the, the danger is. But there's immediately there's adrenaline dumped into their system. And so their legs will quiver a bit and they start picking a leg up and putting it down. They lick <laughs> their lips. When you see that and you start noticing it in the human behavior and it does differ from gender to gender and the way that when two men meet, it's one of my favorite things, the peacocking. Oh yeah, the chest out, the handshake, and then you get the guys who habitually push the handshake down. So they're showing that they're on top and that they're looking. If you're going to fight them back on that, now there's this needs to be sorted out. Dominance needs to be established. And then you get guys who are hopefully... We can call them more evolved, who are content just to say, who are you? This is who I am. Maybe we're aligned. But you get that in nature as well. Even with lions, you can have two unrelated males who will, through a variety of displays, decide they're better off together than as individuals, and they can form a coalition. And that's a form, as you see it, to your point, and I agree, of evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And 
yes, we have TikTok and we pay taxes and all these glorious human inventions that we spend most of our time bemoaning, but our biology is the same. We've evolved stuff. We haven't evolved our bodies, gadgets and gizmos. We've got all of those, but we're still driven by the basic desires, which is survive long enough to reproduce. That's it. Any species that doesn't have that is long extinct. Beautifully articulated and consistent with my own belief, of course, but said in such a nice way. One of my last questions I must ask you is you decided to forfeit one of your tips, your hard earned tips from a tourist for the sake of saving rhinos. And you articulated why the saving of rhinos was important in a very cool way. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, very happy to. And so the northern white rhinoceros is what they call functionally extinct. There are two individuals left. They're both females. So while they, you cannot say they're extinct because there's two left alive, there's no baby northern white rhinos on the way. And what does that matter? The northern white rhino is the result of millions of years of evolution. We could even say billions. Life's been around, I think, 2.4 billion years or so. Large margin of error there. <laughs> But millions of years to get to this. And without white rhinos, you don't have this big bulk grazer who helps keep it open for the other grazers like zebras and wildebeest, but they'll get by, they'll survive. And maybe there's a type of dung beetle that really specializes in rhino droppings and maybe it dies off. And there was a bird that used to feed on those dung beetles and it's not doing as well. And we've actually got evidence for this with meerkats and zebra droppings. So there's all these things that play in, but Ultimately, it's unlikely anything else goes, but the northern white rhinoceros is not going to evolve again. It's simply not going to happen. And we lose that forever. And our children and future generations are going to look and say, how could you let that happen? In the same way that if the Louvre was burning in Paris and you had a bucket of water in your hands, but you just stood back to watch the flames and the Mona Lisa burnt, you are never going to get that back. They might print a copy, but it's not the Mona Lisa. It doesn't have the history behind it. It doesn't have the DNA in it. And what we're doing as a species is watching the Mona Lisa burn. As humans, that's what we're doing is allowing this to occur globally. Kind of moved on from where I was saying about just about being the Mona Lisa is this affects everybody. The more we're intruding into nature and taking from it, the more it's impacting us. All of these problems of air quality in cities, COVID came from messing around with wildlife, the pandemics that, that we've had from SARS, uh, COVID, MERS, all of these things, all from messing with wildlife, deserts increasing, droughts, all these things. We're seeing it. And this supposedly hyper-intelligent, far more intelligent species than everything else out there, we just seem to be enjoying warming our feet by the flames. What a sad and accurate, from where I sit, rendering of what's going on. and. This is a warning that I hope people will heed when they hear what you're having to say. And hopefully the sea level folks who come over will be influencers in terms of technology and find ways to halt the damage we've done and perhaps reverse some of it as well, if that's indeed possible. I, I don't know. Peter, is there anything I should have asked but haven't yet asked? I think often people at the end of... A great conversation. And thank you again for having me on like this. They say, well, what can they do? I think one of the best things you can do is come on safari. Yes, you say, what about my carbon footprint? If people don't come on safari, then right. I mentioned the Okavango Delta, this Switzerland-sized pristine wilderness 
has zero value to that government as it stands. Right now, because tourists come there, the government of Botswana sees us as a resource that employs a lot of its rural population. That's a big deal. It generates revenue. It is better left as it is than mined, than fenced up, turned to trophy hunting. So come on safari. It's one of the best things. And, and not everything has to be at the billionaire level. There's, there's so many different options. There's so many different ways, budgets that are catered to. Every time you do it, you're telling a government that wild places and the animals in those places are worth more alive than dead. And straight away, you're a philanthropist, you're a conservationist, and you have an amazing vacation. You know, you speak so beautifully about the notion that money talks. And this is one of the arguments, I would say, for going on safari. I, I would say and there's at least another, and you have experienced this as well, like me having lived in Japan and having forged relationships with Japanese people. You and I are both Westerners. We went to a place that is vastly different from our own habitat and came to know people from a totally different culture. And as a result, we would never, ever want to see anything bad happen to Japan because we have parts of ourselves there. We have come to care about that place. And I would venture a guess that most people who go on safari leave as ambassadors, leave caring about the cause on some level, various levels. I mean, of course, there's some who leave and just say, okay, I've crossed that off the list and there's nothing more than that. But I would think that most of us leave saying, care deeply about what happens in Africa and a care, therefore, about wildlife and its sustainability. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most gratifying things you can have as a safari guide is the arrival of the reluctant spouse or partner. And uh, there's no misogyny or, or inequality in what I'm saying. I've seen pretty much an exact even gender split in this. Sometimes the husband says they wanted to be playing golf, but she doesn't talk about anything but animals. Or she said she would prefer to be shopping but he's obsessed with documentaries, that person is so often the one you see the most dramatic change in. They're the one when at the end of their trip, they are bawling. And there's like, I feel at home. And, and you see them, they've had a fundamental shift where it's just, no, this is home. And I feel I'm at home here. And I never expected that. And I think it's that the sneak attack that's been launched on them by Africa that makes it so strong. And it's wonderful. It's so gratifying. And that person does come back. I believe there's a tenet in psychology that supports what you're saying. And I think it's roughly referred to as a pendulum effect in social psychology. I, I was not okay. a cat person. I actually hated cats until I fell in love with a cat. And now I arguably may love cats more than dogs. It's hard to say I love wow. them. But there's something that happens when somebody converts to a new religion or starts mm -hmm. learning about a culture that they didn't know about and maybe a culture that they didn't particularly care for and can't come to love, usually the pendulum seems to dictate that they come to love it all the more. So to your point, Peter, I, I agree fully, which causes my final question. And I'm going to make my personal Indiana Jones into Harry Potter by asking this magical question. Peter, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, one skill or insight that would dramatically improve the lives of individuals, as well as perhaps society at large, would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps by extension society at large? This gets granted to everybody. Everybody. You get to, you have a power. You wave the magic wand and it happens. And lo and uh, behold, there's maybe a trickle down effect. Yeah, I think empathy. 
just greater empathy. If, I mean, we were talking off air beforehand about what separates humans from animals and how that definition keeps changing as we keep finding animals doing things we thought were unique to us. And our ego drives us to find something else. And I believe elephants might be capable of empathy and maybe chimps, who knows, gorillas perhaps. But we've got this incredible power to imagine something occurring to us. How would we feel about it? And therefore presume that the people around us would feel the same way should it happen to them. And and you talked about that imagination predicting the future. Now, it can be used for bad, evil, obviously. I mean, salespeople, marketing people are working on empathy the whole time. How do I get these people to feel this way? But as a general rule, I think the world would be better. The conflicts we're seeing right now, if there was just more thought from the other's perspective, and we'd be kinder to wildlife, we'd be kinder to our own families. There's a younger version of me inside going, oh, you've got so soft, but I think this would actually make the world a much better place. Oh, unequivocally, I could not agree more. An old African proverb, if you want to go ask, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You know this one, of course. Yeah, it's a great one. And I couldn't agree more. And I think about one of the reasons that the elephants have been such a success is their capacity for empathy. And we humans could learn a thing or two about empathy from elephants from where I sit. Wow, Peter Allison, I knew this was going to be amazing. I must confess, I've been kind of like one of your fanboys for some time. And (laughs) very flattered. Almost like this guy getting off the plane in the Okavango Delta, like with that, I need to go pee because (laughs) I get to hang with you, man. So the only mandate now is when you come to the Bay Area, (laughs) we got to hang out. Dude, it's so great to meet you. And who knows, maybe one day I'll even get to be in one of your Jeeps that you now know how to drive without knocking over a tree. Somebody else does the driving these days. (laughs) Oh, right on. Do the talking. Got you, bro. Yeah. 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 Just the teeth. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And just one thing, most of the book was actually written in the Bay Area. Where? Hudson and Maine in San Fran. Come on. Where the Bay Bridge touches down into San Fran. Unbelievable. I love that location. Yeah. I used night right near Red's Coffee. Yep. Yeah. I used to work there when I was an internet startup. Yeah. Peter, thanks again. This has been awesome. Everybody go out, buy the book, read the book. I promise you. This will make a great Christmas gift. And this is just way too much fun. And definitely, if you can, find a way to get out to Safari. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. Subscribe.